You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to The Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis and joining me to break down this week in media and marketing is Olivia Crimmel. Hello. Xander Wilson. G'day. And Callum Jaspin. Hi, Damo. Later in the Mumbrella cast, Cal will be talking to Havas Group Australia CEOs Simone Gupta, Laura Eldington, and Virginia Highland about the indie mindset at Havas that attracted Highland. I wasn't out there looking to be acquired by other globals. It was the independent spirit that kind of ran through the scenes of the Havas Group where I was excited to, to, to join and bring our agency in. How the industry shapes up when it comes to diversity and inclusion. Agencies and ourselves included could do a bit better. Uh, whereas I look at what's happening in the UK and US agencies, and they are much more actively ensuring that they are fixing that problem. And creating better pathways and environments for those entering the industry. That's something that we need to, as a collective industry, spend a lot more time thinking about because otherwise we don't change the context, we just put people into an environment which they're, they're almost not being set up for the most success in. But first, the week's topics. The fifth GFK radio ratings. AM dominates amid ongoing lockdowns. Ben Fordham is back on top in Sydney. And is it time to pull FM spend? Plus, Virgin Australia joins the vaccination push with a brand campaign, while other big brands also get in on the action. The fifth GFK Metro Radio Survey of the Year dropped this week, and lockdowns across the East Coast were felt significantly in the results. Gains were made by Nine Radio and the ABC, both of whom had impressive surveys across most markets, even in those with limited lockdowns. Among the headlines, Ben Fordham wrestled back the overall breakfast lead in Sydney. Ross and Russell stayed on top in Melbourne, but there were several other significant talking points as well. Xander, key results and takeaways from the latest survey. Yeah, Damo, so there were a few interesting themes to come out of the most recent ratings this week, which, which as we remember, took place largely with or almost entirely with Sydney in lockdown and, and partly, partly with Melbourne in lockdown, as well as a few other sporadic lockdowns in, in other states. So, um, so that is quite a significant point. The most obvious narrative to take from these ratings is, is as everyone has reported on, essentially a, a pretty significant swing to AM in terms of share. Uh, In Sydney, Nine Radio's 2GB was up 3.4 points, ABC Sydney was up 2, and both stations' breakfast shows had a good boost in their share as well. Down in Melbourne, ABC's Sammy J and 3AW's Ross & Russell both grew their share, as you alluded to there. And, And in Adelaide, we also saw a swing to the ABC despite no significant lockdowns. ABC and 4BC both had small jumps in Brisbane too, Uh, so obviously people up there wanting news about COVID threatening their borders. Uh, And there was a bit less of that trend in Perth with 6PR losing share for 9 Radio, but ABC Perth did grow its breakfast share as well. Um, So clearly news is, is an important currency at the moment for radio. So having listened to all that, you'd probably fairly assume that we're seeing a pretty similar thing happen in the radio ratings as we did in 2020's lockdowns, that being people switching en masse to news talk and sort of leaving their radios on all day with a massive appetite for news. But in fact, there there has been a pretty key difference this time around. And that was something that was pointed out to me both during the interviews I did after the ratings with Nova's Paul Jackson and, 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 and ARN's Duncan Campbell. And that being that while FM shares have lost share in key markets, they haven't actually lost QM or cumulative audience in the same way that they did last year. In 2020, we sort of we were all desperate for news all the time. That's what they told me anyway. Whereas this time, FM radio has, has indeed lost time spent listening or TSL as the metric is, but not necessarily listeners. Uh, Jackson used Smooth FM in Sydney as an example where the QM hasn't dropped, but the station actually had one of its lowest shares at breakfast time in the history of the station and also in the morning. Uh, So if you were to only measure the station after lunch, it would have almost a 10% share and be right up the top of the ratings, which is really quite interesting. And and what this means is that people who might usually listen to FM radio in the morning, they're still listening in the afternoons and evenings um, generally. And Jackson thinks this is because people are still really searching for an escape from that news cycle after they've got their morning headlines. And, And speaking with Duncan Campbell, 
Um, he he thinks it shows that there's significantly less panic about the restrictions now. People are, you know, they're still keen to listen to their favourite music-driven programming. And it'll certainly be interesting to see whether the FM stations can hold on to this QM audience in the next survey, which is only four weeks away, thanks to the one we just had being delayed. Yeah, some really interesting points there. Uh, Cal and Liv, you both spoke to some industry experts. But before we move on to that, Xander, I just want to ask you something, I guess, a bit more general about the the survey results. And that is, you know, what can we actually take out of these results, which are, you know, like you said, they're, they're affected by lockdowns. They've they've changed around a fair bit. That when, when maybe you could argue, maybe we're not seeing um, what we would normally see in a non-lockdown situation. So for for the radio industry uh, and for marketers as well, looking at these results, how much, uh, I guess, should they be looking at them and, and taking them as the Bible of what to do with their programming and what to do with their spend moving forward, being that, hey, you know, in a few months' time, hopefully, we won't be in lockdowns anymore. Perhaps we'll be back in offices and on trains and in commutes and, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I, I did speak to speak to Paul Jackson about this. You know, is this a reason that you know you should look to change your programming? And he he pointed to the stuff that we were talking about before that you know clearly people are still going to Nova stations and Smooth FM for some escape. And he said that really it'll only be a matter of time before regular uh, listening habits return, and and you know we we sort of see the likes of Carl and Jackie O um, have another boost in Sydney and. And, and other stations are around the country, you know, on, on FM really move back up again. One of the interesting points for me at least is is there could be long-term implications from these lockdowns. What, what we have seen that in Melbourne. So Melbourne had obviously the really long lockdown last year. And then unlike in most of the other markets, we didn't see that massive swing away from AM at the start of this year and at the back end of last year's when their lockdowns have ended. The likes of Ross and Russell and 3AW um, and Sammy J on ABC, they, they've had really strong ratings all through this entire period. So so I think there could be an argument made that Melbourne in particular has seen a fundamental shift in listening, in listening patterns and behaviours. We did see FM stations like Fox gain some share at the start of the year and Nova, um, but but they, it wasn't necessarily at the expense of the talk radio, which, which remains strong. So I would anticipate talk radio to be strong in Melbourne for the foreseeable future, whether in lockdown or not. Um, but the question will remain whether any of the listening habits in the other markets can be, you know, changed in the future uh, as a result of what's happening right now. Yeah, so quickly putting you on the spot then because Sydney's in a very long lockdown itself. Uh, do you foresee uh, Kyle and Jackie O making another play for the number one overall uh, spot or do you think Ben Fordham now potentially has a bit of momentum going his way? I think that... It's definitely possible that K&J will go back to number one overall. But as Duncan Campbell said when I spoke to him, they're on a 12.1% share, which is really pretty excellent, especially compared to the next best show, which are you know their stablemates at ARN, WSFM's Jonesy and Amanda sitting around an eight share. So where they are right now is, is really, really strong. Um, but it, I think it's unlikely that we'll see Ben Fordham go on to have you know, like an Alan Jones style legacy where, you know, he's rating in the twenties and that sort of thing. So, so, you know, I, I think realistically we'll probably see those two shows for the foreseeable future be the top two shows in Sydney. Um, oh, and obviously throwing into the mix uh, Wendy and Robbie on, on ABC, but, but I think, I think that one's more likely to, to, to lose share once the lockdowns are over. Speaking of uh, Ben Fordham, Cal, you spoke with uh, Nine Radio's Greg Burns. What were his thoughts uh, across the results? Yeah, I was um, I was actually expecting maybe something a little different to what Greg gave me. He didn't really go into too much detail on Ben Fordham, um, which, as Xander went into there, took back that number one spot. Um, kind of across the board, he played into that live and local strategy, which we have heard um, so many times throughout this year, saying that, each of the each of the hosts across the country were really just kind of um, picking up the mood of each city and keeping in mind that uh, Sydney has been in a lockdown for this entire ratings period. He said that Ben has been able to tap into a bit of that frustration that is lingering. 
also speaking to him about Melbourne, he just called Russ and Ross that um, 3AW combo um, remarkable, calling 3AW a powerhouse um, as the, the, the breakfast show again gained share, staying above that 20% mark. I believe he said that that was uh, 3AW's 54th consecutive uh, survey on top. So I guess, um, yeah, powerhouse would be a good word to, in, in, in particular in the Melbourne market. Um, and again, with that AM gain in the Melbourne market with Sammy J finding better form, I asked, um, I asked uh, Greg about whether that was, you know, a bit of a, not so much of a rivalry, but a bit of a battle developing there. Um, with Raph Epstein's drive show also drawing level with Tom Elliott and 3AW. But he just said that, you know, two completely different audiences. Um, I guess it's interesting to to note how that will be going forward. And Liv, you uh, spoke to Pam and Steve Allen as well. Uh, how did he uh, digest the results? Yes, uh, Steve described it as moderately volatile survey, which I thought was a really good description of it because we have seen plenty of yo-yoing in those survey results, um, especially amongst the different programs, more so than the uh, overall share for the various stations. Um, He said that obviously 2BGs, which we've covered ability to regain most of that lost ground from previous surveys back to similar to what it had in in survey two in March 2021 is is quite impressive. Um, Whether that is all Ben Fordham or lockdown, I guess only time will tell. But yes, no doubt the folks at Nine Radio will be very relieved with that current share for now. Um, Meanwhile, over at KISS, uh, Kyle and Jackie O, who were um, somewhat gloating after the last survey, uh, obviously we'll just need to see if that was a blip rather than a sign of the changing uh, listening habits of Sydney Siders. And lastly, in Melbourne, um, 3AW, that duo of Russell Howcroft and Ross Stevenson on 20.8% is, yeah, you know, powerhouse, amazing. <laughs> um, Steve also said that, you know, it's it's impressive to see that no other show comes even close to that in terms of its market share and persistence um, in that regard. So definitely um, they're doing something right. Coming up next, Virgin, Woolies and Telstra join the vaccination push. Off the back of Qantas unveiling an emotion-filled vaccine campaign last week, Virgin Australia, Woolworths and Telstra have become the latest big Australian brands to launch vaccination-influenced campaigns. The new brand campaign from Virgin is a light-hearted approach, tapping into the feeling of flying. Meanwhile, Woolies cut to the chase with a roll-up-your-sleeves approach and Telstra rolled out Mark Humphreys again. Here's a small clip from that campaign. While we're at it, getting vaccinated will not make you magnetic. I mean, some people may find you more attractive, but I'm telling you right now, they only want you for your chuppa chup. Furthermore, the human body can't just randomly connect to the internet. At best, if you sit at the wrong angle, you might be able to butt dial your way into a Zoom. Cal, Virgin's take on Vax-inspired ads is is a bit different to Qantas. Uh, You spoke with Virgin's Chief Marketing Officer, Libby Minogue, after the ad dropped. Uh, Was she happy with how it turned out? Yeah, I think she was pretty happy. Um, Well, what she went into was that mark different approach to that um, Qantas campaign. She leaned quite heavily on the the Virgin flair, saying that, you know, now is uh, more important a time than ever to really understand uh, consumer sentiment, how people are feeling across the country, and also highlighting that sentiment can change so quickly at the moment. So I think what they wanted to do was just be really positive and fun in what she said was a very Virgin way. Um, saying that people are dreaming of going on holiday right now, saying, you know, let's start planning, let's start thinking about getting people vaccinated and then uh, letting them enjoy holidays and the joys of travel. Um, and well, well, of course, what it comes down to quite simply is quite similar to that Qantas ad, which is, you know, getting people vaccinated so that we can start planning. Um, but this one played much more hev- heavily on the leisure aspect of travel rather than the necessity or, you know, emotional tear-jerking aspects that that Qantas ad last week played to. Um, She also went into how both have very different marketing positionings, um, but ultimately, you know, 
again, both setting that same message, but with a focus on service and value um, from Virgin Australia, also kind of focusing on that velocity program, which this campaign is running hand in hand with the competition um, to get people taking that vaccine. Um, Libby said that within 24 hours since the release, there has been uh, 100,000 people uptake their offer, although I'm not quite sure exactly what the kind of, um, what those figures online for, you know, viewership are. I think we saw uh, the Qantas ad last week um, jump over a million views. So, um, I mean, in an actual earned sense, that did pretty well. Um, But in terms of timing for the campaign, I asked Libby, you know, did you bring this forward because we are seeing so many campaigns dropping over the last two weeks with Qantas, Woolies, as you say, the ABC, and then today Telstra. Um, But, yeah, Libby said that it was always planned for today or, well, this week um, to run hand-in-hand with the AFL finals, which Virgin have a pretty key partnership with. Um, and it, the, the spot will be running across the rest of the AFL finals from this weekend onwards then um, with major spots on grand final day. Uh, and just finally, I asked, so, you know, on when flights do eventually resume, what what's the Virgin policy going to be on, you know, will they go down a sort of no jab, no fly policy? Um, but Libby said it's not really her place to say and just pointed to, comments that the CEO, Jane Herdlicker, commented earlier this week by going pretty similarly with Alan Joyce saying that Christmas is the target for travel to resume, um, that uh, Virgin have made vaccinations mandatory for its 6,000 employees when flights do resume. But again, like Joyce, she, sh- she stopped um, short of the uh, proposing the idea of vaccine passports, saying that that was, you know, ultimately something for the federal government to decide on. Yeah, it's interesting that. It's interesting to see the, the difference in in approach with Virgin and, and Qantas, you know, Australia's two major airlines. Um, you know, if I'm honest with you, I, I, I didn't get that same feeling with the, with the Virgin campaign. I didn't get that same emotion with the Virgin campaign, you know, Obviously, Virgin, different brand. They like their their sort of um, fun campaigns and a bit more energy in them. But um, you know, it's it surprised me a little bit that uh, Herdlicker didn't push as hard as as Joyce was pushing in terms of uh, you know making sure that people knew that it, it was no vax, no fly. Uh, whether you're an employee or whether you're a, a consumer, um, but you know, some of the campaign bits, if I'm honest uh, as well. I mean, looking at that, sleeping on an aeroplane. Eh, you know, do I care that much about that? The 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 man who's uh, walking on his uh, uh, with his bag, you know, like you do in an airport on a on a travelator or something like that. It's not the most memorable part of the travelling experience for for me. I mean, I get it. Um, you know, it, it, it's about remembering what it was like. But um, hey, walking around with my suitcase in a packed terminal not necessarily a highlight for, for me when I'm, I'm traveling, uh, but it'll be interesting to see uh, whether that, uh, I, I guess, pushes Virgin Australia with all the, the challenges it's been through uh, recently sort of back in into the spotlight. But, uh, hey, maybe someone else has a, a different opinion, Callum. You're a much different demographic to, to me. What did you think? Well, I just thought it was interesting that, um, that I, I think the key to what uh, Libby was saying was, you know, playing up the people like kind of desperate to go on holiday. Personally, I'm like the holiday is kind of at the back of my mind right now. I just like to be able to take a holiday from my house, whether that's just like going to the, the footy or the pub or whatever. I, I think um, holidays are, yeah, as I said, not at the front of my mind. And I think the Qantas one much more played up that um, that aspect of, you know, necessity reaching your family members who you can't see. So, I don't know, I think uh, I, I sort of agree with you there, Damo. Uh, moving on from Virgin Australia, Telstra and Woolworths are also in market with fax campaigns. As we mentioned before, Liv, uh, what are the angles that those are, are taking and can you tell us a bit about the, the pros and cons of, of 
brands like those getting involved in, in the Vax message as well. Yes, well, as you and Cal mentioned, obviously Virgin came out with a more comical approach to the vaccination and, and getting back to normal, getting back to things that we enjoy doing, such as travel. Uh, Telstra also took a comical approach um, with Mr Humphreys and, you know, We've seen around the country different um, organisations come out with different stances in terms of how they uh, view vaccination both for their staff and for consumers. Obviously, the hospitality industry, which has also launched a campaign, has been quite vocal about the need for um, staff and and patrons to be vaccinated. Um, We have seen a very different approach, though, amongst these larger corporates with regards to Qantas and Woolies taking a more either emotional or serious approach in the case of Woolies with the, you know, rolling up their sleeves and previously they did it to keep the, you know, the country fed and to keep everyone um, with toilet paper as was the case last year and and now they're doing it to, you know, encourage people to get vaccinated and, again, whether it's uh, their staff or patrons, it seems like they're just pushing for everyone in the country to get vaccinated. Um, Now, corporates getting involved in social issues such as vaccination is not new. We've seen corporates here and abroad tap into social or health-related discourse in the past with with varying levels of of success. Um, Obviously, earlier in the year, and and Cal covered it, you know, brands jumping on board the uh, LGBTQI you know, Proud Month, etc. We've seen brands recently tap into environmental and sustainability mandates, um, both also in that case, uh, Coles and Woolworths again doing that. And we've also seen corporates tap into things like domestic violence and poverty, and there's a whole bunch of different issues. So whether or not these, you know, whether or not these help, um, we'll be yet to see. But it does show that it is at the forefront of corporate Australia's mind and, and it's in their interest ultimately for the com- country to get back on its feet, to get back to normal, for people to travel or go to the football or do whatever it is that we we are used to doing and, and enjoy. Um, it's also worth noting that governments around the world have used the same strategies as some of these corporates, like they've either gone down the emotional, like I'm looking forward to doing this again, or they've gone down the humorous approach. For example, Singapore government did that. So it's it's not unusual in that respect either. Governments are doing the same thing. And um, just speaking of, of foreign governments, it's interesting that a lot of Britain's big businesses have also been very active in the uh, COVID vaccination campaigning. And obviously the UK is, is one of the countries that's sort of been at the forefront of a vaccination push out and reopening strategy globally. So it's interesting to see that. Yeah, I really liked that uh, Mark Humphreys Telstra campaign. I, I wish one of the side effects for uh, vaccination was 5G. It would make my phone calls a lot better in, in the area that I live in. But uh, nevertheless, uh, coming up next, Cal is going to chat to Havis Village's Simone Gupta, Laura Eldington and Virginia Highland. Kicking off today's Mumbrellacast interview, we have something a little bit different. I'm welcoming three guests. Kicking, we have the three CEOs from Havis Group Australia. We have Havis Media's Virginia Highland. We have the three CEOs. Host Havis's Laura Aldington. Hello, how are you? And Havis PR's Simon Gupta. Hi, good to be here. Welcome. Um, so, uh, the, as of, I, I believe, the end of last year, this is a, a new leadership group. Um, and with that new leadership group, uh, I guess a good place to start off, is there a change of strategy or direction with the group? Laura, do you want to take it? Being the longest serving member of this uh, illustrious leadership team. I will, I will. So yes, I've I've been with the Havas Group for probably a little longer than the other two. So I've uh, I've worked within the Havas Group for the last four years. So I wouldn't say there's been a change in strategy personally. I think the Havas Village in Australia has always been about bringing best in class specialist agencies together under one roof, and really incentivizing, encouraging a culture where those agencies work together in the best interests of our clients. But I certainly am thrilled to be in the new leadership lineup with Virginia and Sim, and I think. We've, we're really excited about the potential of the new leadership, some fresh thinking, some new ideas and, uh, you know, what we can do with the business moving forward. So I don't think the fundamental agencies, the fundamental strategies change, but perhaps we're going to start to see some changes to the way that we implement things around the place now that we've got some new voices at the table. 
Yeah, and and we have made one or two small changes to how we work just to ensure that um, there is process behind each business working together. We have the two PR businesses and Host of Us, the ad agency, so Red, Havas, One Green Bean and Host of Us, um, sit within the creative group um, of Havas businesses. And we've um, promoted Ollie Taylor, who has been with Havas and previously with Host for, I think, 18 years, to um, Chief Strategy Officer. So his role is to ensure that the strategic output across all of those businesses is robust and that we have access to all the brilliant insights and data that the Havas um, network can provide. Um, And also that there's a lot of really good training that he's already put in place for people around our meaningful brands um, strategic planning process. So there's a bit of process behind it and mainly it is just good people building good relationships and working well together. So you've got that, I guess, pulling together the the, the creative group, but then how, how closely will, for example, um, Harvest Media be working then with uh, with the creative side of things? Uh, I, I think um, from our perspective, we work weekly with the creative team. So it, we're already linked by clients and our attitude that we bring each day. So uh, each week I'm meeting with Sim and with Laura to discuss clients, our teams, how we develop a greater strategies that sit across the entire group. And in fact, recently, uh, we've shared uh, a new research uh, tool, planning tool, to understand how audiences think across their purchase decision channels. And so what we've done is we've shared that tool, that planning tool and the data with it, so that the creative and the PR teams can actually look at what's happening when, when audiences are making decisions you know, what is the most important messaging that we can do at each parts of those, that's part of the funnel. So we can all bring value to each other and every week we're doing that. So it's been really exciting so far to get together and reimagine how we actually, you know, look at the comms as well as the media channels that we choose. And you mentioned the um, client the client side of things. Is Are you planning on uh, working on at kind of uh, group solutions for clients or is that something that is kind of uh, already in play? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of clients that have already been in play as, as village clients for quite for quite a number of years and even um, before the time of this leadership team. But, you know, we work with the PR businesses, work with Havas Media on the body shop. We just did a really lovely integrated campaign that was rec- recognising some awards um, at the end of last year. And we work with Avis Budget Group, with Host of Us and Laura's team. There's other there's other cross agency um, clients, and we're really trying to put in client centric teams around those clients. JDE, the um, coffee uh, com- uh, FMCG business, which is a global Havas Media client, and also a One Green Bean client. So we're always looking at better ways to give a client-centric approach. Sometimes that is a bit reliant on how the clients are structured as well. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think I think we always talk about the village and the opportunity for the village being one that is centered around client needs. So where it makes more sense for the agencies to collaborate with clients within their own roster of agencies, we're really happy to do that. I think where it makes sense for us to bring us together, there are definitely benefits to clients that they've reported back to us around some of the efficiencies of being able to avoid some of the duplication and politics that sometimes goes on if you're trying to bring a disparate group of, um, of different agencies together. And I think one of the things that we really focus on in the Habas Village is creating a, a really unified culture where, you know, the benefit of that to clients is that you've already got a team of people that know how to work together, they know how to get the best out of each other, and they like working together as well, which is probably the most important um, of all of that. So I think we very much see it as something that reflects what clients need when they when they find that useful and valuable, we can absolutely implement it when they have a different way of working that they prefer. That's okay, too. Um, so, you know, I think we we talk about some clients work with one of our capabilities, with two of our capabilities or with all of our capabilities, and we'll we'll structure bespoke teams to best service that for them. And um, I, I, I know that you, uh, obviously, you know, this is in the context of um, each of you coming together as the CEOs of part of a group. Um, but something that we've spoken about beforehand is that 
uh, across the Harvest Group, there is a sort of a, a, an indie um, kind of identity almost, and and you each come from indie backgrounds. Um, how how do you think that plays out? And uh, I guess if you could expand a little bit more on that. Um, yeah, so I, that's absolutely right. I think the agencies are made up of independently spirited businesses. So Host of Us was formed when Host, which was at one time Australia's largest independent agency, came together with Havas. Um, Virginia obviously comes from running her own independent media agency over many years. One Green Bean was founded as an independent PR agency before it joined the Havas Village. And um, and, and Red was also independent prior to to, to Havas. So I think, I think that's really interesting for us because I think that allows us to balance the great spirit and entrepreneurial that comes with coming from an independent background with the backing of a, a big network. And I think, you know, we are the smallest of the networks, the smallest of the holding companies. But I think that really gives us an agility that when you combine that with the fact that we've all worked in that more sort of independently minded business environment, it's quite interesting when you bring those two things together, I think. I was going to say, just from um, Highland being acquired by Havas, I mean, I wasn't out there looking to be acquired by other globals. It was the independent spirit that kind of ran through the scenes of the Havas group where I was excited to to, to join and, and bring our agency in. And it gives us the freedom to reimagine what is the right way to work with clients, you know, the ability to drive growth uh, and to try different things. So we aren't bound by strict rules globally. Um, what we create today are the ideas locally that are going to be the right ones for clients. And that's what's exciting for me with the indie spirit running through the, uh, the, the theme of the, of the business. Tim, what's your perspective? Um, yeah, well, interestingly, um, One Green Bean, who um, started in Australia and now has um, got a really successful office in London and opened an office in um uh, the Middle East and Amsterdam just a few months ago, we went through a bit of a global land refresh with those things in mind. And that one of the new lines that we've landed on is a big little agency in a big little network. And I, I think it can almost work across sort of just the general philosophy for um, how the Havas group works really well with entrepreneurs coming in and integrating them into the business. I was just going to say, I think one of the other one of the other advantages that we've observed from bringing independent businesses, but backing them in a sort of group and a network, and is is that what we can do it in combination? So when we pool our resources around things like diversity and inclusion, around training, around some of the things that we're able to offer in terms of staff benefits, there's some there's a real power in us all coming together and contributing to that to create something that's much bigger than the sum of the parts. So that's been a really exciting thing for all of us, I think, coming into this environment. Yeah, I mean, Virginia, you touched on that already, but because you were as um, as recently as a year ago uh, in an in an independent, being your your own agency, Highland Media. What have been your, I, I guess, first impressions coming on board to, and how life is different within uh, within that group structure? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, first impressions have been how incredibly welcoming everyone has been of the the Highland team how seamless the acquisition has been. I would say as far as acquisitions in the market go, this has been the kind of the, the golden child um, of how acquisitions should occur, and that is getting the culture right and understanding that the culture is very similar to an indie agency culture. And that's meant that every single person in the team that came in from Highland has really just so easily slotted into the business. Uh, and the other thing that I've, I've found in, in coming into the business is how open everybody is to ideas, new ways of working, opportunities, um, challenging each other to think better, to work better together. So it's really been a very positive year, actually, coming together. And we've had very, very little fallout from both the Havas side and from the Highland side coming together, which is quite unique in itself. So... So far, really positive, and after COVID finally says goodbye and we'll be able to talk and work in the office together, I'm sure it will just get better and better in terms of, you know, how we collaborate. I would build on on Virgie's comment on the integration of Highland into the group. I think that um, there's definitely a cultural fit there that works very well with the existing uh, village agencies. And also, you know, despite it being a very challenging year of 
lockdowns, lockdowns in Melbourne. Our Melbourne office hardly opened at all this year um, and uh, has not been in the office full time and not been able to have big gatherings. We've still, as a team, seem to have made it work. We've got a great HR team. We've got great leadership teams in all the businesses. We still seem to have, you know, built those relationships and um, and and integrated the Highland business into the village um, in a positive and you know collaborative way. It feels good. And then. Um... Uh, I guess the, the one of the main reasons we looked to do this podcast was um, stating the obvious. It's very rare to see a complete leadership team um, entirely comprised of females. Um, and that we have you three as the, the pretty fresh leadership team. Is there something different about the setup at Harvest that, um, I guess, facilitated this or uh, allowed it to come to fruition? I mean, I can probably speak to having been with the Havas group for a little bit longer. I think we've always been really blessed with strong female leadership across the agencies historically. And I think that's something that, you know, the chairman of the group, Anthony, has long been an advocate of um, and supporting women in their careers. And I think, you know, I've worked, um, you know, for host and then host of us for 16 years. So gone through my kind of having my children, you know, as part of the agency and so I don't know that there's a, a a magic answer to that question. I think it's awesome that we've got such strong female leadership. I think 56% of our board is is female in Australia. Um, but I think it just comes from having really strong policy and just a really strong support system, um, especially around working like mums returning to work because that tends to be a pressure point in most agencies when people leave so we are we're not just three women CEOs we're also all mums of, of young-ish kids so you know that that I think that gives us um, a sort of insight and understanding into where that pressure point exists for a lot of women in the industry and allows us to create policy and initiatives to try and counter that. Yeah, and, and it feels like that's an ongoing conversation as well, isn't it, Laura? We are constantly looking at our parental leave policies, um, how we support mums and dads returning to work yep. um, and in those early years. So that's something I think that as an agency, agencies historically have not been at the cutting edge of um, supporting parents of young kids. Um, and we've, you know, we've always been a little bit behind some of the other bigger corporates. Um, but I do think that this business, which attracted me to it, is somewhere you don't have to pretend that you're not a parent. It doesn't have to happen. And um, and uh, we have, like I said before, in Thierry, who is our chief of people um, and her team, who are always driving us as leaders of the business to keep re-looking at diversity and inclusion policies we've got in place and improving them. I think one of the things that's been really great about having Thierry actually is that she doesn't come from an industry background. And so the benchmark that she's, she doesn't say, let's be the best in the industry, um, because I don't think that benchmark's quite high enough for Andy. And I, she goes, let's try and be the best in the marketplace more broadly. And I think there are areas where we've done that really successfully. There's certainly areas that we've identified where we've got a lot more work to do, as have, I think, all, all agencies in Australia. But what we did last year was uh, was was actually try and get to the root of like how are we doing from a diversity point of view because actually it, unless you ask the questions you don't always know and I think we were really surprised actually to see that on some fronts we were absolutely sort of in line with Australian population around things like um, people of colour LGBTQI representation the agencies um, people who identified as having a disability but we still have work to do and particularly around women actually. Um, and and around issues like reconciliation um so you know we center our policies and our work very much around where we think that is most needed because diversity is such a you know it's such a massive topic that um we had to we have to apply some focus to it so that's something we do every year so we're just about to do it again to kind of see how we're performing against benchmarks across all of that yeah a good example is the gender pay gap so that the the hr team started working on that a few years ago it was before my time um thankfully. And, um, and so, you know, there was a gender pay gap across the businesses um, and that they've worked really hard. Everybody on the leadership team, the HR team have worked really hard to ensure that that is not the case anymore. And that isn't the case today. Um, also with benchmarking salaries across the industry, a lot of work has gone into that to ensuring that salaries are benchmarked. And um, so, yeah, there's, there's some real, 
uh, rigor has been put into ensuring that we work in a fair and inclusive workplace. And um, Simone and Laura, I know you've, you've both worked um, across each of the Australia, UK and US markets. Um, do, you, do you think that Australia is lagging behind in, you know, in, in terms of diversity inclusion, not only at a senior level, but across the industry, I guess, in comparison to, to these, um, these other markets? I've just had a recent stint in in London, which um, I I got back here four weeks before, started my new job four weeks before lockdown last year, which was interesting. But yeah, look, I think, for example, there are many groups in the UK that would have a DNI officer that would just that would be solely working on 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 this issue, ensuring that there are policies in place and that there are initiatives in place. Um, I, I I do get, I mean, without any stats in front of me, I do get the feeling that we are just on an anecdotal basis behind. I mean, one of the things I mentioned this last week is, you know, we, whilst we do, um, we do have some good, we are relative to the Australian population in people of colour in the business, but in, in senior roles, I think that agencies and ourselves included could do a bit better. Uh, whereas I look at what's happening in the UK and US agencies, and they are much more actively ensuring that they are fixing that problem. What do you think, I guess, uh, the, one of the most important things to be done would be getting the right people into the industry at the ground level I, I, in order to get a more diverse uh, makeup of the industry and make the industry more attractive to, you know, uh, not just white people I guess yeah I mean I think you raise a really interesting point then about pathways into the industry I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges and maybe one of the areas where other markets have made more more progress than we have I mean I I think about an issue like reconciliation because I chair the advertising council's um, reconciliation committee and one of the big focuses is on is on just creating pathways and entry points into the industry um, in sort of new and unexpected and, and different places to where we have all historically always recruited from. And I think because we've always recruited from the same places, we've tended to recruit the same sorts of people. So I think that's one aspect of it is the pathways. I think the other aspect of it, though, which I think is really important is it's not just about representation. It's about creating the necessary cultural changes in our businesses to make sure that those people, once they en- enter the industry, feel included and welcomed. And so I think that it would be a sort of misstep for us to focus on, well, let's just get the numbers up, but let's not think about, well, how does the businesses, how does the business need to adapt and change to to, to allow different um, different groups of people to thrive in it? And I think that, you know, So to go back to your really question about you know how have we how have we got three female CEOs, I think it's because it's an environment in which women thrive and um, it's not just about the numbers on the, the page. Um, I, I grew up in the country, right? And 30 years ago I had to I had to come to Sydney to get a job in media as well. And I grew up in the country with um, people who are Aboriginals going to my school, people from different backgrounds going to my school. And so also there's an opportunity, I think, for us to move away from the cities. You know, how do we engage and, and make people feel comfortable about working in our industry? Well, let's take our industry to them. And so there are some initiatives that I'm doing around a program called Country Kids Connect, which is something that I started five years ago that I'm developing to go, you know what, let me bring the industry to you instead of you having to do what I did 30 years ago, which was move to Sydney at 17 years old to be able to work in the media industry. So we've got to think differently. Sam, I know you've got some ideas too, yeah? No, I just had a I just had an interesting little story that sort of when we talk about exactly what you were saying about country versus city, what does diversity mean? I was having a discussion with one of my teams who from people of colour um LGTB backgrounds is well represented. And they were saying, oh, but we're a, a, a mix of people. I said, can put your hand up if you didn't, if you weren't privately educated. And uh, I think there was one person. And, and, and I said, so you can see that diversity comes in lots of different ways. And how do we open it up exactly as you said, Verge, of 
people, whoever, wherever people are coming from, they feel comfortable entering this as a working environment. Yeah, it's it's an interesting point. It's not one that's um, often considered. You know, I think uh, uh, from from what a lot of people have told me, you know, in terms of coming into the creative side of the industry, the pathways are quite limited, and you know, the the the, the hoops that you have to jump through, for example, going to awards school, are quite specific. Um, do you think that that would be something, I guess, from a creative side, um, Laura, that that might need to change? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think it's funny that we sort of um, request tertiary education from people to enter the industry. Although I must say, I've barely met anyone whose tertiary education bears any relationship to what they're sort of doing day to day. Like I studied English, so um, you know, I think I think having more and more open minded approach to where we recruit from and how I think to Virgil's point, how we take the industry out to communities where it isn't already represented by people who already work in the industry is going to be really crucial. And then I think it's um, how we sell the industry, right? And make it appealing. We've got some pretty stiff competition um, from some of the, the tech companies. And so I think it's also about making making it as appealing as possible. And I think that's where the, the conversation around how do we create a culture in which people can thrive, um, you know, is a big part of how we how we sell it as, a, as an industry and a business. And then, Laura, just staying with that on, you, you mentioned before that um, your work while being on the board of the ACA, um, how does that, uh, you know, having a focus on forwarding these issues, how does that actually manifest itself industry-wide? So we've done a few things as the Reconciliation Committee specifically around that topic. Um, and I think really there's, there's two main strategies that we're pursuing. One is trying to help the industry get on their journey towards reconciliation. And of course, a wrap is part of that. And we've got our reflect wrap, but it's that's really just a document that represents the fact that you're on this journey of learning and understanding. And um, so I think it's about how do we create some tools for the industry to help them on that journey? What are some of the steps they can take? What are some of the things to think about? What Who are some of the people that we can connect them to? And then the other part of it is absolutely about pathways. So there's already a scholarship program that award run to make award school more accessible um, to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander applicants. So that's been really great. But I think we're also doing a lot of work around, well, how do we broaden that that out even more and get out to more diverse audiences um, to sell the benefits of the industry? So absolutely, it's something that the ACA are putting a big focus on at an industry level, which is really exciting. And also, just to build on what Laura said, is that, you know, we we are a business that is built on creativity being a force for change for other businesses and brands. That's what we're building our, that's what we do. And, um, and there, and I'm not the, God, I'm not the first to say it, but there is always a risk that if the people behind those ideas are not representative of the Australian society, then we do, we are putting ourselves at risk of becoming redundant as businesses. Um, so I think that, as well as it, you know, it's been the sort of fair thing to do. I think we have to do it so that um, the output of the strategic and creative output that we do for businesses um, it keeps up with what is actually happening in Australia and the broader, you know, society. So obviously, the last uh, eighteen months have been a, a little bit different than. Um, than previously with you know COVID and everything that comes with that, um, do you think there's there's anything that COVID specifically, uh, well, I mean more generally in the industry uh, has accelerated any trends that have popped up? I think I think one of the things for me that's really come out of COVID is an increased awareness of mental health issues and an increased level of responsibility and care from agencies to look after their people. Like I think that. You've seen the stats, like they're not great in terms of the, the um, number of people in the industry that suffer from sort of mild to severe anxiety and depression. But I think going into the COVID environment has meant that agencies have better understood their role and responsibility in helping their team. And I think across the industry, I've seen a lot more focus on destigmatizing mental health issues, on providing more pastoral support, employee assistance programs, and really understanding the role that the workplace plays in helping people maintain good mental health um, overall. So that's one of the things that I think has actually been a real benefit of, of, co well, a benefit of COVID 
I guess if you can say that is I think we've put a lot a lot more focus on that on that issue specifically. I also think we've helped to streamline our thoughts and our thinking. So for example, with my team now, we're doing half hour meetings with clients and they love it. They don't want an hour and a half meeting with us. We can actually explain very tightly in a half hour, which means we give clients back their day, we give our team back their day, and we still get through the, the same uh, workload and the same effectiveness in our discussions. So I think, you know, it's really helped us really hone in on, on what's important uh, when we're looking at plans for clients and how we communicate. So that's been the upside, I guess, of COVID is we're, we're far more ruthless in how we, we um, use our time, which has, you know, led to much more time given back to the team. And then um, you haven't you haven't had the chance to uh, to properly have a good run at all being in the same building together. Is there anything that you particularly look forward to um, in terms of uh, in terms of that when we eventually do return to some sort of normality? I think, from my perspective, what I look forward to is really just getting together with Sim and Laura, and being able to just really nut out some ideas, some challenges, some problems, some opportunities that we have together to collectively take to clients. So, you know, the, the three of us working together, three three CEOs, all with their own perspective and opinions, can really help drive the growth of a lot of clients' businesses. And um, I'm really looking forward to sitting in a room with them and going, right, how do we all come at this collectively with very diverse ideas to help drive growth for clients? So that's what I'm really looking forward to. Same, same. I can't, I mean, look, I think, I think this whole experience has really taught us about what we can do when we're remote and the benefits of, you know, flexibility. But I also think it's really taught us what the beauty of bringing humans together in the real world is and what we miss when we don't get to do that. So I just, for me, like we have a village meeting every Monday. It's, 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 it's virtual, obviously, at the moment. But I think the energy that you get when you bring different groups of people together and just let them have more spontaneous, unstructured conversations um, is is awesome. And I just think we are, uh, especially in creative industries, but just generally, I think humans just need human contact. And the the I think we'll see some real magic when we manage to reunite all of our teams in the real world and 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 sort of just let them get on with their own unstructured collisions and bringing together of ideas. And I and just to build on what Lauren Verge said is, you know, I'm just looking back, looking forward to just the old fashioned going, going for drinks, going for lunch. I mean, I feel for the young people who are joining agencies right now. You know, the main reason half of us joined was because you knew you were going to make lifelong friends and just have a, a lot of fun whilst doing some good creative work. That was why we joined agencies. And um and uh, so I'm looking forward to all the new people that started this year, all these young people that started during COVID. It's just really, you know, starting those friendships that, you know, I'm from, I've been friends with people 20 years ago, my first agencies, you know, so that's the bit. I just, I'm really looking forward to that, you know, and that's where, like Laura said, the good ideas come out of all of that, but also just the great friendships and working relationships are formed in the, in the in-between the meetings. And in, a, in another um, in another time, we might have been able to do this in person, uh, but we've been stuck with the the virtual conversation that we've had and the the technical difficulties that come with with uh, you know COVID podcasting. Um, but I want to thank each of you so much for for coming on the podcast. Uh, um, really appreciate it, and it's a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. And that's it for this week. We are done. We're out until next week. Please uh, subscribe to MumbrellaCast and your favorite podcasting platform. But in the meantime, Liv, Xander and Cal, thank you so much for joining. Thanks, Damien. Thank you. Thank you.